Hi, this is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth podcast number 884 with author Nate Klimp about his new book he co-authored with his wife Kaylee Klimp entitled The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Relationship. This podcast number 884 is brought to you by author Kun Lin Hung, author of a new book entitled Solve It Yourself, Fix the World's Problems with Science. This book helps you to find root causes by learning how to ask questions. Kunlin uses thought-provoking questions and starts with the pandemic as an example. The current vaccine that was developed was the result of our scientific community coming together and sharing data about the spread of the virus. The 5Y techniques is a simple yet effective way for you to keep asking why to get to the root cause of the problem. If you want to learn more about Kun Lin Hung and his passion for solving big problems, please visit his website at www.kuanlinhuang.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with author Nate Klimp about a new book he co-authored with his wife Kaylee Klimp entitled The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier and Stronger Relationship. Happy listening! Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And we have a returning guest, actually, uh, Dr. Nate Klimp, uh, PhD. He is joining us from Boulder, Colorado, where he was introduced to me by Beau Parfait, who wrote a book that's, boy, long time ago, uh, Die Trying, One Man's Quest to Conquer the Seven Summits. But I became very good friends with Bo as a result of that. And Nate and I uh, did a podcast, which we'll put a link to on a previous book. But we're going to be talking about um, this book. And it came out of he and his wife's own pain in their marriage. Um, So they decided to write this book for everybody. And it's called The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Relationship. Nate Gadadia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Greg. I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's always good to get guests on that are speaking about topics that are timely. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think there are so many things today that are timely. And it's I every time I get on, I learn. And that's the best uh, way, way to do this. And same thing with my listeners. And I always thank them because they come from around the world. Um, We've got the largest is United States, second is Canada, and third is United Kingdom. So for all of you who are out there in those three regions and everywhere else that are listening, thank you for taking the time to listen today. And we're obviously going to be talking about relationships and how to build better relationships. Um, And Nate is, um, uh, let me just tell the listeners a bit about you. He's a former philosopher, professor, and founding partner at Mindful, and you can check it out. Uh, There's a website for that. He's the co-author of Start Here, a New York Times bestselling guide to mindfulness in the real world. Nate received his BA and MA from Stanford University and PhD from Princeton. Now, his wife, Kaylee, is also a highly sought-after executive coach specializing in building trust and synergistic teams. She is also an Enneagram expert. And I got into that really deep. So I need to have a conversation mm-hmm. with uh, Kaylee because uh, we've had several Enneagram 
uh, authors on the book. Actually, one of the the kings of Enneagram was on who lives up in the Bay Area. Uh, TEDx speaker and co-author of the 15 Commandments of Conscious Leadership. Uh, She received both her BA and MA from Stanford. So I'm assuming both of you lovers met at Stanford. You know, it would seem that way, wouldn't it? It, We met just before. Uh So we both grew up in Boulder, which is where I currently am. And we met in high school. We were at Boulder High School. We were chemistry lab partners our senior year. So we actually met and started dating. And then we both ended up going to the same school, Stanford. But just before we left, we pragmatically broke up because we were like, you know, we're 17. We're too young. Right. And uh, then we got back together seven years ago or seven years after that. Sorry. Well, you chose a ago. great school, uh, both <laughs> of you, which uh, we all know. Uh, kudos out to all the professors that I've had on from Stanford. Uh, the the most recent uh, is a gentleman who actually is a on-site physician and teaches uh, pediatric medicine at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just did an interview with him. It was great. Um, I'm thinking of his name as we're talking. It's uh, Greg something, but uh, we both have the same name. But Nate and Kaylee, and in this case, Kaylee's not here to fend for herself during this uh, this marriage thing, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, marriages today, Nate, as you know, are undue amounts of stress. Um, pandemic, trying to raise kids, you know, putting on the masks doing the whole routine, the vaccine not available for kids under 12, concerns, whatever it is that you want to throw out into the world today uh, that young people have been attempting to navigate, it's there and it takes its toll on marriages. Um, My son, who's 40, has two young ones, lives in San Rafael, works for Adobe. I understand the pressures. Um, Based on your personal experience, why do you believe that we are seeing more couples in counseling? And I was actually looking at the statistics. The divorce rate hasn't gone up. It's actually gone down. It was an interesting one because I actually did some research before we got on. But we are certainly seeing an upsurge in kind of counseling. And you guys have come up with a formula here and a model. Um, which you believe could help a lot of people. Speak with us about it. Yeah, well, I think there's good news and bad news when it comes to looking at the state of modern marriage. So the good news, I think, is actually what you're referring to, that there are more and more couples going to counseling. And I think that's good news because there's this strange stigma around working on your marriage. And it was interesting. We even saw this when we were promoting the book, you know, I had some friends come to me and say, hey, yeah, I bought your book on Amazon the other day. And my husband saw that there was this book called The 8080 Marriage, this marriage book in our cart, and was automatically like, is there something wrong with our marriage? Did I do something wrong? (laughs) And I thought that was really telling because that's the mindset we have around marriage. And it's so different than other things. I mean, If you were to buy a book on how to be a better leader, nobody would say, oh, well, you must be a terrible leader. Or if you were to buy a book on how to be a better parent, nobody would say like, wow, you must be the worst parent in the world, right? They would say, oh, great. You're improving leadership skills. You're optimizing your parenting. 
And yet when it comes to marriage, there's all this stigma and this belief that we should have it figured out, that it should be easy. And if you have to work on it, then you're doing something wrong and you're just somehow not good at it. I, I totally so, concur with you. You know, look, the, the days of uh, Dr. Ruth and Dr. Phil are, are out there. But, you, you yeah. know, there's always been talk radio around love, sex and marriage. I mean, there's all yeah. kinds of talk radio people that are out there doing that. And I think it's kind of like this, you know, they're always on it late night. Because, yep. you know, when you look at it, it's like, well, we're not going to do this during prime time drive time because there's a stigma yeah. attached to this. So we're just going to let the people stay up late night and do it. <laughs> exactly. And, and but I do think that that's changing. So the fact yeah. that more people are going to counseling and getting help, I think, is a sign that it's starting to change. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the idea that, hey, we don't have to treat marriage like this weird taboo thing or sex or intimacy, like we can try to optimize marriage and be good at marriage, just like we were trying to be good at everything else, parenting, work, et cetera. Um, so, so that's kind of, I think, like the good news part of the picture. And then I think the bad or the challenging news is that just over the last year or two, many couples have experienced this really challenging, difficult time. And as you said, the divorce rate has not skyrocketed. A lot of people thought no, it, COVID it, it was going to do that. It's actually 7.4%. Yeah. And I, I actually think in Out many cases, it's become a disincentive to getting divorced because there's all sorts of complications that now come from living a COVID life with kids and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think what has happened, what we've been hearing is that it has amplified whatever it is that you had in your relationship pre-COVID. So for couples that were close and doing fairly well, in many cases, COVID has made things better. Like they have more time to be together. But for couples that were sort of teetering on the edge of conflict and tension, in a lot of cases, it's just amped up and, you know, kind of like crank the volume up on that, that state uh, and, of tension. You know, in the book, you speak about the battle for fairness in a marriage. And yeah. You know, I, this goes back to John Gray, who endorsed your book. Um, would you rather be right or would you rather be in love? You know, yes. and, I, and I see this happen where it's that in that that is a battle for fairness. Right. But it's yeah. also about being right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the 50 50 shared situation wasn't working for you and Kaylee. Um, yeah. So tell our listeners about your research and why you believe the 80-80 marriage, which is uh, mm. 30% more, <laughs> uh, is a better solution. Um, and and I would agree, because what you're trying to do is come together close. Surprise, you didn't yeah. write it the 100-100. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we actually have a reason why we didn't do that, which I can get into in a second. Yeah. But no, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, when we decided to write this book, we wanted to look at both our lives carefully, but also the lives of many other couples. So we interviewed about 100 people to really understand what was going on in the modern state of marriage. And we found that it was really helpful to kind of zoom out because I think a how lot of us choose, in our relationship- How did you choose those 100 people? Was there an economic, yeah. social background, uh, educational background? Was it a pretty diverse group? Um, yeah, we were striving for as much diversity as we could get. Yeah. So, you know, initially we started with people we knew. And then from there, we kind of grew our list, you know, asking for various 
you know, other couples to see if they'd be interested in this as well. So, so we tried to get as much diversity as possible Good. politically, socioeconomically. You know, we had a number of same-sex couples of both genders. So, yeah, because so we if did you our- didn't, you didn't get quite the great cross section that you need. Because I think for people coming from uh, lower social economic areas, yeah. uh, trying to raise kids, earning a lot less money, uh, it, there's a lot more struggles, and it and it it can show up in the marriage. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm glad you took a cross segment. So anyway, go on. I just was making sure yeah. that we had a pretty good cross segment of people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and so we found it really helpful to kind of zoom out from our current situation, because I think for many couples, you're so focused on the micro day-to-day level of relationships that there's something important that we all miss, which is that there's been this monumental change in the institution of marriage. So, you know, if you think about the 1950s, you think about your grandparents or maybe even your parents, there was likely a very gendered model where one person did 80% or more, generally the woman, Mm -hmm. the other person did 20%, generally the man. And what we have now generationally is this shift to what we call the 50-50 model. And this is a model that I think in many ways is to be celebrated, you know, that we're now in a situation where for many couples, it doesn't matter whether you're the man or the woman in the relationship, you know, you both have equal opportunities to do amazing things. You can both go to graduate school. You can both become an attorney, you know, whatever you want to do, the world is your oyster. And that's what we were told growing up is, you know, realize your potential as an individual the complication with that that we ran into and many of the people we interviewed is that marriage is a very different kind of institution. It's not really built for individual success. And so what we did and what many couples are doing now is saying, okay, well, the the way we can be equals and in love is to make everything perfectly 50-50 fair. Mm-hmm. The technology we're going to use to do that is this really kind of clunky tool where we just keep this mental tabulation of everything that we've done and everything that our partner's done. And we're constantly comparing it and we're arguing about who did the dishes last or who took the kid to school. And and so we're getting into this conflict over fairness. And we're in this mindset of making everything 50-50 that, hey, I'm just going to do my 50%. And if I do more than that, now you owe me, which just isn't really the most like loving or intimacy boosting way of thinking about relationships. So the basic insight behind the 50-50 marriage is that if you want to get out of that fight, that struggle over fairness, that conflict, that resentment, the best way to do it is to begin shifting your mindset by contributing way more. So, so we think of it as 80%, right? which makes no sense and it's crazy and it's based on this idea of radical generosity that I'm sure we'll talk about more. But the basic idea is that by shifting the goalpost from 50% to something radical and crazy, that makes no sense really, 80%, you're actually able to dramatically and sort of radically shift the underlying culture of a relationship. Well, speak with me for a minute, because behind this fairness question at its root is our ego. And I think that the 
uh, you're obviously a mindfulness uh, sought after speaker and coach and look at this area. You know, the monkey mind goes around and around and around and people start getting these thoughts. And uh, as we used to say, you don't have to believe everything you think. But the reality is, is that's what's happening here. You're seeing something and experience something and you're believing that that's the truth. And your mind is telling you that's the truth. When in essence, it's just a matter of basically just do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Right. It yeah. doesn't, I, I'm not putting anything against the 80-80. I think the extra 30% is great. Uh, the reality, though, is at the core of this, and you probably can speak to it as as good as anybody, is what the self-talk is that's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. What advice would you have for our listeners out there about this negative self-talk it's constantly pervading about, did she do this? Did I do that? Did who do this? It really shouldn't be that at all, should it? (laughs) Well, I love this question because as you say, mindfulness is a big part of what I think about and what I do. And you're absolutely right that the default mental habit of most people in relationships is this soundtrack that's playing in your head. Yeah. That's basically presenting this completely skewed picture of your relationship in your life where you're the one who's right and you're the one who's doing more and your partner, if they could just do a little more, or if they just weren't so deluded about X, Y, and Z, you know, everything would be great. And basically it's a world in which you have zero responsibility. Your partner has hundred percent responsibility for making everything great. Mm. And so, um, I think it's important from the perspective of mindfulness to recognize that that soundtrack is likely never going away. Like Kaylee and I wrote this book and we've spent the last several years where this is the central project of our life. And the soundtrack of 5050 has never left us. It's Mm -hmm. always there. Mm -hmm. But what you can do, I think there are two things you can do. One is you can just begin to see it happening in real time. That's kind of the mindfulness move to just sort of like watch it, become interested in that soundtrack because it's kind of crazy and interesting. And, you know, it's like watching a sitcom or something. Right. So so that would be thing one. But then thing two is to start to recognize that a lot of the assumptions that your mind is making are based on pure delusion. Um, So this gets into some research we talk about in the book which basically, you know, there's a whole line of research coming out of psychology showing that our assessments of fairness in relationships are clouded by a couple really interesting cognitive biases. So one is what researchers call availability bias, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that everything I do in my relationship, all of that information and those amazing contributions that's all available to me. I see all the socks going into the washing machine and the dishes and the trips to school with my child. But what's happening on my wife's side, all of her contributions, most of those aren't available to me at all. So I have this tendency to sort of underestimate what my partner's doing. And then there's a second cognitive bias, which is overestimation, where we have this tendency to just vastly overestimate are the amount of time we spend on childcare and housework, right? right? So like if I'm doing dishes, I'll say that I did dishes for 60 minutes. It was probably more like 30 minutes. We're just really bad at estimating this kind of work. 
So I think that's important because it's just essential to see that this story that's going on in your mind is is often based on really bad data and really bad assumptions that are actually not true, not even close to being true. Yeah. And, you know, look, we as individuals, we've been taught this, we've been engendered with it. We put labels on everything, including ourselves and others. So, you know, we like to label it with with a noun or verb or something that says, hey, you know, this is what I label. And it is really quite interesting. Uh, I was talking with a hypnotherapist the other day in the subconscious mind. I thought that was really, really quite something. Now, you know, in your first chapter, you speak about the work of Dr. Edwin, is it Pulaski? Podolsky, yeah. Podolsky. In his book, Sex Today in the Wedded Life, written in 1945. (laughs) You know, I think this is great because we're talking about you know, eons ago, way before I was born, even. Yeah. Um, what is it about the advice that applies today as much as it did back in 1945? So when you look at a lot of uh, the, these books that have been written, were written on sex or they were written on whatever, I'm sure there may be funny to look at in comparison yeah. to where we are today. And how does the 80-80 model apply? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We started with his book. Uh, in that first chapter, because it's really a chapter about the 80-20 model, which is kind of the starting point. So we wanted to to dissect and kind of unpack the essence of this model. And he was the perfect place to go because in the 1940s and the 1950s, it's my understanding that there weren't really you know as many uh, discussions happening about sex and intimacy and relationships. But this was one of the few books where it was discussed. And at the end, he has 10 commandments for wives and for husbands. And it's a really fascinating list because it's kind of a mixture of like pretty good advice and just totally sexist advice that you can't imagine anybody uttering in this day and age. Right. So, so, you know, there are things like be a good listener, like that's actually pretty good advice. Everybody should do that. But then, you know, for wives, he says things like, you know, don't burden your husband with your troubles because, uh, his, yours will seem trivial in comparison to his, right? Things like that, that where you're just yeah. like, wow, nobody would ever say that. And if they did, they wouldn't have a public platform ever again. Not today. No. Exactly. So so we thought that was just interesting because it shows like the precursor to 50-50 where the assumption is that one person, generally the man, always the man really, has this sort of greater status in the relationship. And that's an assumption that has started to break down. And I think we would all applaud that. And the reason we start there is because that early model, while it's totally sexist and culturally backward, I think we'd all agree on that. It actually did one thing pretty well, which is that there was a very clear structure of roles and responsibilities, and both partners were sort of aiming towards shared success. In contrast, Many modern couples, many of the people we interviewed are dealing with a situation that we would call role confusion, where now that we're both equals, we're both equally capable of making dinner, of doing the dishes, of doing all the things that need to happen in our lives. And I, and I'd add unclear to that, who knows what. And I'd add to that both capable of economically bringing in the right. So then the question is, which didn't used to be as much, right? It is what it is today. And back in 45, that probably wasn't the case. Uh, Now you're seeing wage equality 
You're starting yeah. to see more of this happen. And I think that even from looking at the patriarchal, matriarchal kind of situation, we came from a patriarchal, we obviously are going more into this matriarchal. Um, and I, I think it's important uh, that you bring up a very good point because it's it's there. Um, and if you would speak with us about the many facets of fairness in a marriage, um, how do the fights over fairness show in relationships and what can be done to mitigate these issues? You provide a list in the book, and I think that's yeah. a telltale for any of our listeners, uh, even if you rattled off a few of those things on the list, I think it yeah. would be good. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to connect this to the earlier point, I mean, it's the fact that there is this confusion and and we're both now equally capable of doing everything. Right. It, it signals in our minds a real power to bringing a little bit more intentionality and structure to the way that we think about our lives and also just awareness, you know, to get back to mindfulness, just to become aware of fairness. So when it comes to these various faces of fairness, one of the really interesting things we found is that if you ask most modern couples, hey, do you ever fight over fairness? They will likely say not really. Right. But then you dig a little bit under the surface and you ask a few more questions and all sorts of fairness fights begin to reveal themselves. And so that's why I think it is important to sort of like talk about, well, how does this show up, this battle for fairness? So one of the most classic fights is around sort of domestic equality. You know, so who's cooking, who's cleaning, who's managing the social calendar, who's doing kid logistics, right? Like a lot of couples find themselves fighting over what's 50-50, what's fair when it comes to just sort of like the the complicated logistics of everyday life. Then another way that shows up, which showed up for us and a lot of the people we interviewed, is a fight over fairness when it comes to time with extended family and friends. So, you know, one couple told us about they were going to divide up Mother's Day and Father's Day equally. So, his family got Father's Day, her family got Mother's Day. But then the question became like, how many hours exactly are we spending with your family versus my family? And that has to be fair. That has to be equal. Then there's money. A lot of couples fight around fairness when it comes to saving or spending. You know, so there are some classic fights where one couple feel or one person feels like the other person is spending too much. And it's not fair. You know, here I am saving, holding back on big purchases, and you just came back with a bag full of clothes from Nordstrom's. That's not fair. And then finally, one of our favorites here is the fight over free time. And this is a fight that happens the moment you have a child. So, you know, the, the moment you walk home from the hospital with a kid, all of a sudden, free time becomes this like extremely precious, valuable, scarce commodity. You know, having an hour to go for a run or having an hour to go to a yoga class or to go fishing or whatever it is that you do. And so a lot of couples told us about these fights over how much free time do we have and what counts as free time. So one woman told us that, you know, she went to Target and her husband was like, okay, you had your free time. Now I'm going to go for my run. 
She's like, wait a minute, I went to Target. That's not free time. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. So you can just see how all these sort of conflicts start to fall out of these various areas of fairness fighting. And I and I'd hate to say that, you know, it's about letting go, but really, you know, I, I know it, it, it might sound a little bit trite to the listeners, but you know, if you can learn to stay in a space like Nate is talking about, um, fairness is the state of mind, you said mindset, that you created. It isn't the other person. It has nothing to do with the other person. Uh, It's how you perceive how the time that person is being used is spent. Um, And if if you can at least shift your mindset or perspective to look at it that way, um, you probably will reduce a lot of the tension. Now, you talk about uh, the two fallacies of fairness. Um, what are those fallacies? And we explain yeah. those to the listeners, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. And and just one comment on what you were saying just there, because I think it's so important, is that I think there's a really essential principle here, which is that your mindset in a relationship is contagious. So if you show up in your relationship, scanning everything your partner is doing, trying to figure out whether things are fair, holding a lot of resentment, that is contagious. Your partner will mirror that back to you with 100% certainty. And that's why the shift to radical generosity in 8080 that I'm talking about and we're talking about in the book is so powerful because that's also contagious, right? So, So it really only takes you to make that shift. And, and so I just wanted to underline that point. And then I love the question about what are the, the sort of um, two delusions of fairness or the, or the ways in which, you know, fairness creeps in and, and we try to use it and it sort of starts to break down. One of them is just a problem of, of comparison. So, you know, when we're talking about what is or isn't fair in a relationship, we're often comparing things that are totally incompatible or impossible to compare. Right? So I might be comparing the work I did on finances for 30 minutes against the work my wife did at three in the morning helping our child. That's really difficult to compare and say like, well, how do we sort of make those equal? You know, or the, the time I spent with my kid at the pool versus the time my wife spent at an important business meeting, you know, we're comparing things that are just in very different domains, and it's it's almost impossible to make accurate comparisons. So that's one of these traps around fairness. And then the other trap is what I was mentioning earlier around these cognitive biases, right? So the fact that we're just really bad at assessing what is or isn't fair. So you know, I talked about availability bias, overestimation. It's just this fact that we're really pretty much deluded when it comes to our information and the data we have that we're we're using to make these comparisons of fairness. And as a result, you know, if we take a step back, it sort of shows that this fight we're having over what is or isn't fair really doesn't make much sense because it's based on these inaccurate domain comparisons, it's based on really bad data. And, and it's really taking us away from what we want out of marriage. Yeah, and it, it, you bring up a really good point in the book. You discuss this concept, the mindset of radical generosity. 
as it relates to the 80-80 marriage and how the mindset can change everything uh, for a couple struggling. Um, yeah. And also, what are the two traps for radical generosity? In other words, you talk yeah. about radical generosity, and then there's the two traps of radical generosity. And I love the concept of putting radical and generosity together in a statement. Yeah. Um, and and I get what it is. The question is, yeah. how do you help people live it? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So if we say that this 50-50 mindset of fairness isn't working, I hope I've persuaded everybody that it's not <laughs> for all sorts of reasons that we've talked about before. Then the question is, okay, well, how can we shift our mindset to make marriage work, to get what we really want out of marriage, connection, better intimacy, et cetera? And we think the answer is to push the goalpost way beyond 50% to 80%. And the way to describe what that would look like or how that manifests in a relationship is radical generosity. I mean, it's generosity because generosity is by definition doing more than what's fair, but it's also really radical because in many ways, the cultural center of gravity keeps pulling us back to fairness in marriage, keeps running that automatic soundtrack that you were talking about earlier, Greg, that we just get locked into. And so this idea of radical generosity is the idea that you can push way beyond 50%. You can contribute more than your fair share. And just as I talked about before, that there's a way in which that can become contagious and it can start to create what we think of as a kind of upward spiral of radical generosity, where I do something radically generous for my wife, Kaylee. She's more inclined to do something generous for me. You can see how there's like a feedback loop that starts there. Now, what gets in the way- It's a a reciprocity. You know, in other words, it's- it's Yeah. You're giving out- radical uh generosity and generosity and 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 as you said you know to repeat it's doing more than your fair share or yeah depending on how you want to look at it it's really a a state of consciousness that you have you have to cultivate that state of consciousness that giving is an important element without anything in return so it's like okay i'm going to give but what am I, I, I'm not expecting anything by what I give. Um, and that does take cultivation by people because a lot of people have been brought up that way. They've like, what's in it for does. me? So it's like, what's in it for me? And I'm like, well, does there have to be anything in it for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that sort of leads to the two barriers to radical generosity that you were asking about. So one of them is what we call inequity phobia. Which is basically just a way of saying that we've been conditioned into this 50-50 mindset. And according to that mindset, acting on the basis of radical generosity is crazy. I mean, it's almost right. insane. And so there's a way in which we're we can feel some really intense emotions, some deep unfairness, and and really some fear and discomfort when we start to experiment with this mindset of radical generosity. And our advice in the book is a very sort of like mindfulness-based practice that it's totally okay to feel that discomfort and you can just be present with it. And that in many ways, change in marriage almost requires 
that discomfort. We like to say that like your marriage begins at the edge of your comfort zone. You know, it's moving into that discomfort that that is a sign that you're doing something different. So there's that. And then the other big thing that's a barrier for a lot of people is that a lot of people have a story and, and it's actually a legitimate story that they're the ones doing everything. And they're likely the one who's reading this book. So, so many people will say, well, you know, why should I be radically generous? I'm already doing everything. And I think that's a really important objection. We actually wrote a whole chapter at the end of the book about the reluctant partner problem, as we call it. But, but basically, the, you know, the short answer there is that, yes, you might be doing more, but chances are you're not doing it from this place of radical generosity. You're likely doing it from fairness. That's creating resentment. And it's likely creating a, a dynamic where your partner actually wants to do less. That was certainly the case for me and Kaylee. I was kind of the reluctant, under-contributing partner. And the more resentful she felt, the less I wanted to do, the less equal things became. Yeah. So it made the division even greater and greater. Exactly. You know? Even though you think you're you're trying to create equality, the more you get into that game of fairness, the more inequality sort of falls out of the system. It's like taking two magnets with the same polarity and trying to push them together. So exactly. You're getting is, exactly like they, the result you the, don't want. They're, they're never going to go together. But if you were to turn <laughs> one this way and put yeah. positive and negative, it's going to come together, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in the chapter on contribution, what you do, you tell this story about Rob Israel, the co-founder of Doc Popcorn, which is the world's largest franchise popcorn retailer. Um, yeah. I, I I wanted you to tell the story. So what is was Rob's challenge? And speak about this story in the context of what you do and then how you do it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was just a fantastic story. So Rob was one of the people we interviewed for the book. And, you know, when I told him about what we were doing, he was like, oh, wow. I had this moment where I just totally saw what you're talking about, the, the power of radical generosity. And the moment was he was, I think, in his late 20s. He was living in New York City. He was about three years into a relationship with his girlfriend. And he came home one night and he had expected her to be there and he had expected dinner to be on the table and her to be excited to see him. And he walked into his apartment and nobody was there. She hadn't even come home yet. And like all of us, Rob's mind started to generate all these stories about what was going on, right? And the story was, she doesn't do enough. She should be here more. She should care about me more. She should be more excited to see me, all these things, right? And then at a certain point, he describes it as this kind of uh, voice of God moment where his mind just popped this radical question, which was, well, what have you done for her? And he wasn't really clear. Like, he didn't really have a good answer to that question. So then he decided, wait a minute, I'm going to just completely flip the script here. So he went to this Korean deli and he bought all of her favorite foods for dinner. And he was going to plan this kind of magical evening. And she walked into this Korean deli, saw what he was up to, and it just completely changed the course of their relationship. And what he told me after the fact is he learned in that moment that 
If you want your partner to be more loving, more intimate, more compassionate, a better listener, it starts with you doing that for your partner. <laughs> right. So, so he got everything he wanted from his partner by giving it to her first. Right. And I think really that's the essence of what we're talking about here with radical generosity. And in terms of the the how and the what you were describing, you know, part of the the key to radical generosity is not just doing something kind, but it's how are you doing it? What is your mindset as you are doing it? So if Rob had done that with the mindset of fairness, you know, and gone to that store and said, well, I'm going to do this really nice thing for her. And then she owes me, she better do it for me tomorrow night. It would have meant nothing. Right. Right. So the the how is almost as important as the what, when it comes to radical generosity. You know, it was, uh, it was portrayed on, and I'm sure it's true, but it was just recently on LinkedIn. And I read this story about Keanu Reeves, you know, and he travels frequently on buses back of buses and he's extremely generous i mean give just gave five million dollars someplace so he showed up 20 minutes late but it is his demeanor it is who he is the way he was brought up about this huge generosity about the fact that he travels in public transportation which he doesn't have big limos taking him around they said he was standing out in the rain for 15 minutes when he was knocking on the door Right to get into this event that he was supposed to go to. And I thought mm. it just speaks very highly of just some people's level of generosity, you know, $5 million to this thing and, and be there and show up and not just the money, but to actually show up and be part of it. I think it's it's so great to see that kind of philanthropy, that kind of person and what yeah. he's doing. Now, you speak about John Gottman, the world's leading researcher on science of marriage. And what you learn about Gottman's Love Lab and how can this help empower the appreciation in a marriage? Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, this really connects to what we've been talking about, this difference between what you're doing and how you're doing it. You know, what's the underlying motivation or mindset? What's the how look like? And I think Gottman's work more than anything shows that how we're interacting with our spouse, whether it's positive or negative, Mm -hmm. really makes all the difference. And so, you know, I think he's done a lot of really interesting research, come up with a lot of interesting discoveries, but probably the most important one for our purposes is that when he looked at the difference between so-called masters and disasters of marriage, right? The couples who are just crushing it, who love each other, they're connected, and the couples who are living in chronic unhappiness. What he found is that the primary variable that differentiates those two is the ratio of positive to negative interactions. So he shorthands this as the five to one ratio. Basically, what he finds is that if the ratio in your marriage of positive to negative interactions is five to one. You know, you have five positive interactions where you appreciate each other or you give each other a hug for one, you know, nagging comment or sort of sarcastic remark. That's a sign you're doing really well and you're probably going to make it as a couple. As that ratio goes down though, and if it inverts, (laughs) then you're in trouble, right? Like if most of what you say to each other is negative, 
and defensive and, you know, sort of blaming, then, you know, chances are you're not going to make it. And and it sounds so obvious, but Gottman was the first person to really see that. And, and I think the big idea there that, that we sort of latch onto in the book is around like, okay, well, then if you want to shift your mindset in marriage, one of the most powerful things you can do is simply appreciate your spouse. Simply yeah. add more to the positive side of that ratio. And it's just noticing what they're doing, thanking them for it, noticing how they're contributing, giving them a quick thank you. Kaylee and I have actually turned this into a habit because we know that you know the default structure of our brains often won't do us do it for us. So at the end of every day, when we're lying in bed, we just do one appreciation. It takes 30 seconds and it just completely changes the, the energy of the day. Very good one. That's a great piece of sound advice at the end of the day to actually uh, take something and say something to the other person and listen intently uh, for what yeah. that appreciation would be during the day, whether it doesn't matter how what it is, just as long as it's something. And if everybody did that every night before they went to bed, that would probably be a good a good way to end your, your day. Now you yeah. talked about this reluctant person. You said it was you. Uh, and I'm sure that many of my listeners have experienced the reluctant partner in the relationship, whether it's male or yeah. female, either side, how do you deal with this uh, resistance and reluctant partner? If you're in a relationship where one person um, has little or no give, meaning, yeah. you know, they're just like, forget it. This, this is who I am. Take me for yeah. what you are and I'm not going to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like a really common pattern where you have often an over contributor and an under contributor. And statistically speaking, the over contributors are the women in heterosexual relationships and the under contributors are men. And, you know, one thing that was really interesting when we were interviewing couples that were experiencing this dynamic is that it's actually really painful for both partners. You know, you might think like the under contributor has this great setup where their partner does everything. Isn't that amazing? But it's super painful because, you know, the story in that relationship is whatever. Nate doesn't do as much. Nate is just a free rider, whatever it is. That's actually really painful. So um, when you're in that kind of a situation, you know, and we, we talk about it a lot in that chapter where we have some practices, right. on it, but there are a few things you can do. So one is as crazy as it sounds, shifting to this 80, 80 mindset of radical generosity is a big deal mm -hmm. because as I said before, your mindset is contagious and most over contributors aren't doing what they do from a mindset of generosity. So making that shift where you just keep doing whatever it is that you're doing, but you shift your mindset around it, that can be huge. And even if your partner doesn't sort of catch on, you're at least ameliorating some of your own suffering, right? You, you know, the stress response you have as you're doing the dishes, you're at least shifting that. But then the other thing that's super powerful is to start to look at, are there ways in which I, the over-contributing partner, am participating in this dynamic? Generally, the answer is yes. So just to use the case of me and Kaylee, I was the under-contributor, she was the over-contributor. If she was here, what she would tell you is that there were ways where she was holding this pattern in place because she didn't want to let go of control. So 
she was the one doing our finances. She complained about the fact that I never did our finances. But for about 10 years in our marriage, she was unwilling to let go of that control. Right. And so for her to start to unwind this pattern, she had to let go of some of that control. And that was really the way in which for us, we started to unwind this, this pattern is that you know, both of us started to see how are we participating in this? Well, you take things on in life that you think you're better at, and frequently you've never given the other person an opportunity to experience it. And it's yeah. primarily as a result of fear because you've been doing it yourself. So Kaylee had this thing that she did herself, yeah. which was your, called the finances. It could be anything, the taking care of the kids, the dishes, the whatever, because yeah. the issue is, uh, you know, Nate won't do it right. Yes. Right. And it's also power. So there's a yes. power in having those exactly. things as well, because it gives you some power. Uh, and the only way to really uh, diffuse that power is to let go like she did. Yeah. So now you're probably doing the finances. Or I am. I do all the finances now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And you do a perfectly good job of it. And you took something off her plate. So mm -hmm. that's a That's a really big win for you guys. That would go in the win box. <laughs> Check yeah. uh, there. Now you cover a lot in this book, um, the 8080 marriage. And I think by this point, the listeners get it. Uh, it's a matter of changing their mindset. Uh, it's a matter of uh, using radical generosity uh, to get to that 80-80 mark. And you, I want you to give three takeaways that you can leave our listeners with that can help them relieve tension in the marriage uh, and, and how to improve the love, compassion, and understanding. Um, yeah. As the Dalai Lama would say, you know, all we uh, really need is love and compassion. So the question then would be, if that's the space you're coming from, um, you probably wouldn't have these problems. Yeah, if that's where right. you stayed. If you stayed yeah. in that essence, uh, it, it you know you'd be like him, and you'd be laughing all the time. <laughs> totally, exactly. Yeah. Well, I and I love the question because it's really great to have a few actionable things you can do. Exactly. I like but, the one you gave us at night. Do the acknowledgement, yes. right? Yeah. So, so I would say like appreciation. In the book, we talk about mindset. We also talk about structure, which we haven't talked too much about here. So I'll give you two mindset tips and one structural tip. So in terms of mindset, small micro acts of contribution. If you can do one such act a day, this isn't anything big. This is giving your partner a huge hug. This is making them coffee in the morning. This is writing, I love you on a sticky note and putting, them on their and putting it on their monitor. One of those things a day that can be huge. That starts that upward spiral of radical generosity. Appreciation would be my number two. We talked about it earlier, establishing a regular habit of appreciation. Maybe it's at dinner. There's an appreciation check-in. We do that in my family sometimes. Everybody offers an appreciation for the others at the table. What about your epic date? Yeah. The date night thing, super important, especially now where it's very difficult to find time together. What if that's then, even just going out and ordering the food and having uh, uh, Uber bring it or something? Yes. The reality is a lot of people now, you know, they're not going out. As they're not. Much, exactly. But, it's like, but, but they night went is ahead and now. actually did it and had it brought in so you yeah. guys could have a dinner together. Yep. Exactly. Well, yeah. and then the, the last one is more from the structural side of the book. So uh -huh. 
in the book, we have a bunch of practices around things like priorities and boundaries and roles, power and sex. And the one I would just say is, is crucial, or at least it was crucial for us and many of the couples we interviewed, is getting clear on roles. As I said before, we live in this condition of kind of role confusion. Many couples have employed what I call the wing it approach, where they say like, hey, we're just going to let historical accident and random gender norms from the 1950s determine who does what. And it usually doesn't work out that well. So just sitting down together and thinking through, okay, what are we currently doing, both of us? Are those things lined up with what we like to do, our strengths, things like that? And and then coming up with a more intentional structure, it, it takes like 10 minutes, but it can be a complete game changer. Well, I think your example that Kaylee was doing the finances and then you took it over is a role. Uh, it is in a role. Relationship Absolutely. That was a game changer. It was totally. like she was pissed off because she was doing it all the time <laughs> and you weren't. I'm just putting yep. words in your mouth. But usually that's what happens. People get exactly. to a point where they're like, oh my God, every year I have to do the taxes. Every year I'm meeting with the accountant. Every year I'm doing these things. And I don't, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. Do you want to do it kind of thing? And that requires some flexibility too, uh, because I think over time things change. So that to me would be, well, let's revisit this every year. Let's look at these roles on a yearly basis or every six months or whatever. So you've given our listeners a ton of food for thought. And I'm going to tell them, go to the 8080 Marriage website, and there you can download as well um, the information I just said, which was about the Epic Date, um, and I I think called the Epic Date Night. It's a free guide uh, that they offer. You also can watch a video of the two of them introducing the book, which I think is quite good, plus an interview uh, that was done on Good Morning America as well. Uh, that gives you some idea about that. Nate, it was a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, uh, speaking with my listeners about how to improve relationships. And I, and I want to state this to so many people. What's applying here? Um, if you're not married and you're listening to this show or you're not in a relationship, uh, think about how you could apply that in the relationships at work. Yeah. Because uh, the reality is much of what, you know, Nate's talking about here, the whole radical generosity, the fairness thing, these same problems occur in a work environment. So um, <laughs> I just, I just want to say that because I think there's got to be some people out there that are single that are going, uh, this doesn't relate to me, but um, mm-hmm. you know, there are ways to apply this no matter what. It's universal principles, to be honest with you. It's what it is. So thanks, Nate. Namaste. Thank you so much for having me on, Greg. I appreciate it. I appreciate having you on. And I appreciate the uh, the wisdom that you've imparted on here. And the, and the fact that you and Kaylee got to this 80-80 marriage and actually generated a book and informed people about how it can improve a relationship. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Elizabeth Gould, author of a new book entitled Feeling Forwards, How to Become the Person Who Has the Life You Want. 
In this interview with Elizabeth, she cites lots of research to validate the power of feeling forwards, and with every story and example, it brings awareness to the reader so they can better understand the power of using their emotions to propel them into the future and create the life that they want to live. If you want to learn more about Elizabeth, her book, and coaching programs, please visit her website at www.elizabethgould.com. That's Elizabeth, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H-G-O-U-L-D.com. Tune in for more great podcasts from inside personal growth, and thanks for listening.